Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for this week's episode with the one and only Coot Blackson. Coot is a longtime friend. He is a, an incredible teacher, and he's got a new book out around the art of surrender. And this is a topic I think many of us can relate to. It's a deeply resonant topic, uh, given that all of us have gone through a pandemic uh, where we suffered a, a significant amount of loss collectively. Many of us are also going through our own personal losses, myself included. I had a profound loss, the, the passing of my father. And so I think it's a very, very resonant topic. And we go into some incredible territory during this conversation. It was extremely, extremely resonant. And I think it's very, very relevant for our time. And so I think you're going to get a tremendous amount of value out of it. Um, please stay tuned, check it out, and let me know your thoughts. You can always hit me up at Michael Trainer on Instagram. And let me know what your favorite part of the episode is. Go ahead and take a screenshot of, uh, of your favorite part or where you're listening and send it my way. Let me know what you'd love to see more of. And uh, as always, if it's something that resonates, please go ahead and leave a rating and review. It helps us grow the audience. And uh, my commitment is to continue to bring you more and more epic guests. We're about to jump into it, but before we do, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Mudwater. Mudwater is one of my favorite brands. They have an impeccably qualitative uh, oriented product, which is a coffee alternative consisting of entirely organic ingredients. It's uh, ingredients that have been lauded by cultures for centuries for their health and performance benefits. And frankly, it's delicious. Um, it has only a seventh of the caffeine of coffee and gives you natural energy, but without the jitters. It has cacao, masala chai, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, chaga, cordyceps, reishi, and lion's mane. That's it. It's one of my go-to beverages. I love it. Uh, and I think you will too. Check them out, mudwtr.com, mudwater.com. And if you put in Peak Mind at checkout, you'll get $5 off your subscription. I think you will love it. Definitely, definitely give them a try. Again, mudwater, mudwtr.com, and Peak Mind at checkout. And with that, and without further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce. Coot. All right. I am here with Coot Blackson, my friend uh, for, for years now, uh, who I recently ran into in uh, our shared home of Tulum, well, one of several of his homes. And Coot is, is a dear friend. I've, I've known him for several years now. And I, when I saw him, I said, you know what? Uh, I would absolutely love to have you on the show. I've never actually had him on Peak Mind. But his soul talk is something that I've listened to for quite some time. And, uh, and actually years ago when we did the peak mind launch with, uh, Deepak and Eckhart Tolle, mm -hmm. uh, he was gracious enough to give us copies of the first book. You are the one, which I wound up gifting to many of my friends. And I, I've never shared this with you, but, uh, actually several of the friends that I gifted it to Coots, um, 
remarks on how uh, transformative it was mm. for them in terms of their life. So I was like, you know what, we got to get you on the show, my man. Uh, I think yeah. I, we're very aligned in terms of message. So, uh, so it's, uh, it was great to see you in Tulum and uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. It's great to be here. You know, synchronicity brought us together again in Tulum. So uh, I'm just been excited for the interview. Yes, my man. Well, for context, for those listening, you, one of the things that I find uh, fascinating about you is in, in, in some ways you have a, a lineage, if you will, a history um, of inspiration mm. um, that stems back. And uh, the story of your parents, I find fascinating. Um, <laughs> and, and, and your father, in terms of what he had accomplished, in some ways it seems like what you groomed to take over and shows in some ways a different path, but a related path. Can you, for the context of the audience, share a little bit of the story of your parents, how they mm. met, oh, and, wow. and, and, and if you will, and, and then the context of sort of what he had created and, yeah. and where that left you? Yeah, just, I mean, wow, this, those are like three different stories, but let's, let's roll, man. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go, go deep. Let's go deep out, out of the gate. Uh, you yep. know, I, I was born in Ghana, West Africa. My father's from Ghana. My mother's Japanese. I grew up in London and, you know, now kind of live globally, uh, which is a, a real blessing. But, you know, my first memories was, I remember being around age five, five, six in that zone, being a chubby kid. And I, I remember being lost in the crowd uh, in Ghana, West Africa. And I saw this crippled woman crawling on the floor. And she, you know, her hands were like kind of mangled and her legs were a little off and she, she basically couldn't walk and stand up. And she picks up the sand that this man walks on unbeknownst to him and uh, stands up and crowd goes crazy. And I guess it would be considered a miracle. And, you know, at a very young age, I didn't really think much of it. It was just part of my normal everyday reality week after week. I grew up seeing blind people see and deaf people hear. The same man who sent she picked up would look at a woman in a wheelchair and say, straight up, say to this woman in a wheelchair who hadn't walked for 20, 30 years, why are you in this wheelchair? Stand up. And she would say, but I'm sick. And he would say, do you believe? Stand up now. Boom, she would stand up. People would come in in crutches and he would say, throw these crutches away. You're not sick. And they would throw the crutches away and they would walk. Blind people, deaf people, this, this ease is being cured. And so this man was my father. And that's kind of the, the sort of framework of, of spirituality and possibility I grew up in. My father built uh, 300 churches in Ghana, West Africa, a huge church in London. Uh, he's kind of like an African Siddha, you know, like a Muktananda meets Sai Baba meets T.D. Jakes rolled into one. That's, 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 <laughs> how, that's how I describe my father, slash, you know, slash the sort of metaphysical, mystical uh, Christ consciousness themed bent. And so, uh, so by the time I came around, he was very much into the mystical side of spirituality, the mystical side of Christianity. So I was blessed to grow up uh, reading uh, things like religious science and Ernest Holmes, um, Unity, Charles Fillmore. I grew up reading from a very young age, age, eight, age nine, being very obsessed with just trying to understand the, the the whole meaning of life, the purpose of life, why are we here, who am I, what's the purpose of life, where do we come from, where are we going, is, you know, I would see many people who, you know, I had a scholarship to a very prestigious school, 
since we didn't come from a lot of money. But all of these kids, their parents were, you know, billionaires and, you know, sons of presidents. And, 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 and those are the kids I grew up with. And so I grew up with people that had every reason to be happy, yet I saw many folks miserable. And, and yet the, the, the congregation and my father's followers in my father's church were some of the most uneducated, simple people from Africa, the Caribbean, Jamaica, the West Indies. And yet they had very little but were deeply fulfilled. So I started to really question life at a very young age in terms of what is the purpose of life? Is it just to go to work, make money, eat, sleep, go on vacation, buy a few cars, buy a home, you know, have sex and then die. Surely there has to be more. And so that started my, let's say, spiritual seeking path process where I started meditating in a very young age, where I started to have these spiritual experiences at a very young age, where I started reading. You know, I started reading books, of eight, nine, ten uh, books by people like Krishnamurti, the Eastern mystics like Krishnamurti, uh, Maharishi Mesh Yogi, Art and Science of Being, um, uh, I mean, the, the Blavatsky, and then the, the Western sort of pop psychology folks like Wayne Dyer, Louise Hay, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, uh, Dan Millman, et cetera, et cetera. And this became my life, you know? And, and so my path was age eight, I started speaking in my father's church and age 14, I was ordained as a minister in my father's uh, lineage. And I was supposed to be the guy, Michael, that took over and took things to that next level and took it out to the world. And, you know, there were all these sort of signs and prophecies that my father had before I was born, that my soul came to him and told him what I was going to do and what have you. And, and so when I was ordained at 14 and announced that I would be my father's successor, uh, I knew in my heart that that was not my path. I knew in my heart that that was not my my mode of expression. But honestly, I was too afraid to to have the conversation with my father because I was afraid that if I dared to be myself, if I dared to tell the truth, if I dared to speak to my father and tell him, hey, this is not what I want for my life, then I would lose his love, I would be outcast, I'd be abandoned, I'd be alone. And so I said nothing. And, and it was a four-year process of sort of sadness, depression, turmoil, you know, tears, letting go. And when I was 18, I had to make a decision of, do I go to university? Well, like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And I looked into my future and I saw the expected path, the path that everyone expected of me, society, my father, family, community, hundreds of thousands of my father's followers and devotees and, you know, all the hopes and the expectations for what I was going to do with my life and the weight of that. And as a young boy, it was pretty heavy. But when I looked into my future and saw, wow, if I, if I follow that path and I become successful by by the world standards, but I don't have myself. I, I just felt like such a, such a heartbreak, such a sadness. And, and then I looked into this other path. I felt my soul calling me in a totally different direction. And uh, I didn't know what that was. I had no idea where that would lead me. I just knew that I was supposed to come to America because all the books I'd read, all of the self-help gurus and teachers, you know, lived in America. They lived in Southern California. They lived in Northern California. And, and I, wanted to, I wanted to meet them. And so 
that was my calling. And uh, cut a long story short, I finally mustered up the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to follow my truth. I'm going to follow my own soul. I'm going to, fo- I'm going to, like nothing is worth not living in alignment with my soul. And had the conversation with my father. It was very difficult. We didn't speak for two years. Um, and that's what kind of brought me to the U.S. and took me on another journey where uh, I ended up winning a green card in a lottery, two suitcases, $1,000 came to the U.S. And that's kind of a bit about my journey to answer your question uh, in a nutshell about my parents, since you said that was kind of an interesting uh, story in a nutshell with my parents. And they, they really do have a, a unique uh connection so to speak it's a bit unusual when my so so now that you understand a bit of the context of my father when my father was let's say he must have been about eight years old in Ghana West Africa now understand this is probably in the 40s right uh this is way before technology and internet and communication and phones he would have these visions as a young boy of a Japanese guru uh kind of like a Yogananda but a Japanese version. And this guy would come to my father in his dreams when he was age eight and teach him about life and the cosmos and the mysteries of life. When my father was 15, he became a Christian, old school, you know, orthodox Christian, gave his life to Jesus. uh, And he started healing people. And my father from 15, 16, 17 became known uh, as the miracle man of Africa, the miracle boy, the miracle man of Africa. Miracles started happening. Thousands of people started coming. He built... The churches exploded, uh, became very famous all throughout Africa. And so when my father was uh, 37, uh, by that time he had three kids. His first wife died, uh, so he was single. He was in a store. This is in the 70s, by the way. He was in a store in Ghana, West Africa, way back. And a book falls off the shelf. He looks at the back of the book. He sees the face of this Japanese guru who he'd never met, didn't even know was a real human being. He's completely shocked, completely surprised. And he basically writes to this man and he says, you've been coming to me in my dreams since I was a young boy and guiding me throughout my life. I didn't know you were real. This man, his name was Masaharu Taniguchi. He's Googleable, And he writes back to my father, so impressed, sends his son, basically his son-in-law, to meet my father in Ghana. The son-in-law comes to Ghana, meets my father, so impressed, invites my father to go to Japan on a huge lecture tour to meet the guru with the guru. Uh, My father said to the the son-in-law before he went back to Japan, he says, look, I believe in the power of intention and the power of prayer. I am looking for a wife. Would you please pray for me? The son-in-law says, of course, I'll pray for you. I'll hold you in my prayers. The son-in-law goes back to Japan gives a lecture, announces to the, you know, in this seminar that my father, this African miracle worker, is coming to Japan to give a lecture with the guru. Here are the dates. Now, my mother, here's where the story kind of connects. My mother, she grew up in this Japanese spiritual organization. This Japanese guru was her teacher and her parents' teacher and the guru to the family. She's 28, 29 at this point. Now, in the 70s, if you're not married by 20, you know, 24, 25 in Japan, that's considered way old. And so at this point, she's 28, 29, considered past, you know, past her prime. Uh, and she's, she's not meeting anyone she feels aligned with. So she's, she has a prayer. She says a prayer. Her prayer is basically something like, God, I will marry anyone you tell me to marry. Just make it clear. Like, 
her prayer is basically, I surrender everything, you know. Uh, make it clear that this is my soulmate, my life partner, the, the one for me, my destined, aligned, you know, soulmate. And so she's in the audience. She hears about my father uh, coming to Japan. And when she just hears of his name, she said she feels chills in her body, the guidance from her soul that says, this is your husband. Bear in mind, my mother speaks no English. She's never been out of the country. She's never seen a white person, let alone a black person, let alone an African person. And so the chances of this is very unlikely. She writes to my father, gets, gets his office address. My father's in London. He's meditating. You know, his, God says to him, your wife's coming to you tomorrow. He goes to the mailbox. There's a letter from my mother. He, nothing romantic. And he opens a letter. He says, this is my wife. Writes to my mother. And he says, would you, this, this shows you a bit about my father. Would you be open to moving to Ghana? My mother writes back through her sister who's translating and says, if it's God's will, he writes back and says, it's God's will, marry me. They haven't seen each other. They don't communicate the same language. They haven't even had a conversation. They agreed to get married sight unseen before they even met. My father goes to Japan, goes on a lecture tour, meets my mother for 45 minutes. They agreed to get married officially, goes into the newspapers. The whole country's in, you know, in shock because this was in the 70s before there was many interracial marriages. And my father doesn't have, last point is my father doesn't have any money by Japanese standards to throw a wedding. You kind of have to throw a wedding and represent. And so six weeks later, he goes to his mailbox. You know, he's not getting paid for this tour. Six weeks later, he goes to his mailbox. There's an envelope. He opens the envelope, $7,000 in U.S. cash in the mid-70s. And it says, a note, no name anonymous. This is for your wedding. And they got married and went on a honeymoon, couldn't speak had me the rest is history and that's kind of a little context of you know my parents me and where i come from thank you for breaking that down i i, I read about the story a bit in in your new book and the it was just fascinating to me to to read the story of of how your mother and father met and the fact that they began relating for the first it sounded like a couple of years of their marriage ostensibly through a dictionary dictionary and, yeah, exactly <laughs> and, and and to me um to see kind of that that relationship obviously manifest you in in you and the way that you've gone about carrying your life and, and yeah. your, to bring it back to the initial narrative of of you sort of being a stand for that notion of your soul's calling yes. and ha having the temptation and possibility interestingly enough because it wasn't like your your father was a stockbroker and mm -hmm. or something where it was so divergent from your path or your course mm -hmm. it was actually he was also doing work in, in many ways aligned to sort of uh, purpose and 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 souls calling mm -hmm. just in a just in a context that wasn't it sounds to me uh, like it was totally authentic to your own unique signature of soul calling mm -hmm. and one of the things that i that i've known of you from you know uh from your first book and and then now kind of delve more deeply into with the second book is this notion of 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 being in the listening if you will to that truest voice within yourself and that yeah. that notion of the call that, that calling of the soul which is in many ways it feels like a counter a countervailing force a counterforce to the programming which is so prevalent in society around what our ego thinks we should do or the construct of you know how we're taught to plug into society and this yep. social framework um and 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 really specifically and 
and I just want to make this a little bit personal for a moment um, mm-hmm. and, and bring it a little bit also uh, into the, the story you just shared, which is, you know, yesterday uh, I was flying back from uh, Lake Atikalan, Guatemala to, to Tulum uh, in advance of, of our conversation. And it was the one year uh, anniversary of my father's passing. And um, for those who listen, you know, have been, have been multi-year listeners, um, you know, that you have a sense that my father was, was my soulmate. He was my, my best friend. He was, um, uh, he, he, he is uh, still in spirit, uh, my, 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 my soulmate and my, you know, my closest my closest uh, human I've ever known on the planet and, and God willing, I hope to meet a, uh, you know, a partner someday that where I have that kind of, of, of love that I can share and create in, in a family. But, but in essence, I share that to say yeah, well, yesterday I was reflecting on life and loss and what, what it is like to lose those we love the most. And, you know, you, you share in, in, in your book about, and I want to send my condolences, um, about the loss of your mother, who sounded like a, a truly remarkable woman, but also in the way that you relate about your mother. And, and, and in many ways, it, it brought up for me uh, mm. the, the sage wisdom of my own father. And in terms of, in many ways, he was my greatest spiritual teacher. Mm. But the, the way that she embodied and exemplified the promise, in some ways, mm. of surrender. And to me, the beauty of the way that she was so surrendered, even in the way that she led her life, right, in her in her faith, if you will, in pursuing the relationship with your father. And then as I as I understand it, when she received her cancer diagnosis in the way that she lived uh, fully surrendered to, Mm -hmm. you know, the 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 process. Mm. Um, Can you share a little bit uh, from a place obviously of a son, but also as someone who, who learned deeply from this sounds like incredibly wise woman. Um, yeah. what, what it, what, what did you learn through the process? And I know that this is a much bigger subject, so we can take it in smaller mm-hmm. pieces and I'll ask deeper questions, but what did you start learning about surrender that, that was so, um, salient for you that it, that it, that it became, it, it seemed like almost a central offering in this, in this broader theme of, of how one follows their true soul calling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Many times, you know, we, we have an idea uh, of what, who we think we should be. And we have an idea of the life we think we should be living. Or we have this idea of the kind of partner we think we should be with. And we have this, this notion that we, we impose on life and we sometimes force onto life and uh, push into life and intend into life. And and we use that sort of idea to, to try to fit life or fit people or fit relationships into our limited context and idea based on our conditioning, our programming, our ego, our personality, our past, our mind, our you know, cultural whatever. We try to fit life into our little idea and, and end up trying to control life. And I think that's how we end up limiting life. And I think life is so much, so much bigger, so much richer, so much more magnificent when we, when we really surrender. And so, yeah, my mother, you know, was a real, she was the inspiration of the book. Just to be clear, the magic of surrender was actually not the book I intended to write <laughs> cosmic joke from the universe. Even when my mother passed and I knew that there was a book seeking to come through me, 
it was like, I have to write a book. There's just, just so much happening inside of me. There's, there's a book, there's a book. I had all these ideas, bro, of, ah, you know, I remember one day I sat down with an entire huge whiteboard the size of an entire wall, and I was throwing all of these ideas onto the board. I even sat with my editor one day, and we were just spitballing ideas, and, oh, this idea and that idea, and I dumped all these ideas, and then we kind of put with like 50 titles, and there were all these great ideas of the book I thought I was going to write. Oh, that People would love that. That would sell. Wow, that would be a bestseller. That title's a catchy one. That title's a you know, New York Times bestseller. And all of those ideas dropped because there was one moment when we were just bouncing ideas and I was bouncing ideas when literally the soul of the book the soul, the energy, the frequency, the clarity, the knowing, the obviousness of what was seeking to happen actually revealed itself and became really clear. And it wasn't like, honestly, sometimes when that nudging and that guidance arises inside of us, do this, go here, don't do this, don't do that, pursue that, this is the partner. This is the person. This is the direction. It's not necessarily like a loud siren bell where we hear, you know, loud noises. Sometimes the guidance of our soul that we are to surrender to is a gentle breeze, is a gentle nudging, is a gentle, you know, like a feather touch. It's just quiet that if we are truly paying attention, everything can shift. And so when it became clear, it was like, oh, shit. The book is about surrender. Wait a second. Oh, can, like, can it be? You know, can it really be? Then when I finally just took a step back and surrendered to the book being about surrender, and then I reflected on everything I shared with you in terms of my life story, right? And my parents and my life and my upbringing and what I saw my father live, which was surrender, what I saw my mother live. Michael, I just, re- it was like everything, all the dominoes started coming together. And I realized that this is the book I was born to write. This is the topic. I, w- I was, you know, I can't write about, let's say, money management, you know? I, I mean, I, I can't really write about, you know, certain you know, real estate. But holy shit, I, I, surrender has been the very fabric of my life and my birth and how I was born into this existence. And, my entire childhood, and it just became so clear, and it was a letting go to that. And I think when that clarity starts arising and we, and we resist that, to resist that is to block the flow. And that's when also the title came, because I had all these sexy titles that I thought, oh, these would really sell. And it simply became the, the magic of surrender. It was just like obvious, you know, obvious as day. And so my mother... I realized, uh, gifted me this book. My mother, in her life, in her process, I got to, yes, she was diagnosed with stomach cancer. During that time, I, strangely, I mean, this was a very emotional woman, very human, you know, with her own human limitations and frailties in certain ways as a person, you know, very challenged in in many ways emotionally, an amazing soul, amazing human being. But I realized that through her life, in ways I didn't observe, she had been living surrender. Once she got the diagnosis for stomach cancer, for the entire year, I was flying back from London, from LA to London to be with her in chemo sessions, to take care of her for three, four, five days at a time. 
I would sit with her in chemo. I would sit with her after chemo. We would just talk about nothing and everything. And she never once complained. She never, she never once complained. She never once felt like a victim. She never once. And, and it was really when she passed that, that I realized, wow, part of the reason. Like this, this will give you the example of, 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 of true surrender and the essence of, of, for me, when I received the transmission of surrender, when the doctors told my mother, that you don't have long to live. They basically lovingly say you're going to die in a few days or weeks or maybe months, so get your affairs in order. They say that in a nice way. And I looked at my mother and I said, are you, are you afraid? You know, the moment is coming. And she looked at me and she said, no, I know I'm not just this body. I am a soul that is eternal. And this body is just a vehicle. It's temporary. I'm traveling through this existence. And she was so at peace. And then I said to her, is there anything I can do for you to to make your life easier? Is there anything I can take you, somewhere I can take you, something I can buy you? And this was the essence of her surrender for me that was, it really stuck with me. Um, she simply said, there's nothing I want. I just, and not to have this be a religious context because it's not, for me, it was more of a spiritual understanding. She said, the, what she really said was, there's nothing I want. All I want is what God wants for my life. In essence, she was surrendered to the highest good for herself, the highest good of what her soul's journey is. And sometimes we think we know what we want, but we can only know what we want based on the level of our consciousness in this particular moment. We think we know what's right for us, but in many ways we really don't. And, and so I think surrender is the willingness to let go of control. Surrender is the willingness to take conditions off of life. Surrender is the willingness to stop trying to negotiate your destiny, negotiate with life. Surrender is the willingness in many ways, you know, even in self-help and personal empowerment, we've been programmed and conditioned to like be powerful, be empowered, know what you want, go for what you want, you know, create, make your reality, create your reality, hustle, push, crush it, move. You know, this personal power idea, which I think is okay. And I think we can create our life based on intention and manifestation and, 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 and the mind. But what I, what I have found is a life created from will and the mind tends to be limited. It might be good, but it's limited. But when we surrender, we open. We open to the infinite possibilities. We open to the bigger dimension of life. And so for me, there's a shift. And I really feel there's a shift happening on planet Earth at this particular time. I think 2020 was part of that phase transition, a paradigm shift, where we as a global humanity, as a species, are being brought into a deeper relationship with life, with the flow, with the intelligence, with our souls, with ourselves, a whole different way of living from personal power to soul power to soul force. Because when we surrender, we open ourselves to being lived by life itself. So I think the question is shifting from, from us asking ourselves, and this is what I saw my mother live. This is what I saw my father live. You know, when I looked at the great ones, even after my mother passed, I looked at the great ones because I thought, oh, the book is going to be about greatness. But when I looked at the great ones, Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, Muhammad Ali, um, Mother Teresa, uh, Mandela, Martin Luther King, they were great. They were all great, but they weren't great because they were the richest people, the most handsome people. They were great because there came a point where they surrendered themselves to the bigger destiny. 
They surrendered themselves I'm sh- to something more than themselves. I'm sure Mandela didn't want to spend 27 years in prison, you know, but he, he surrendered to his soul's path. There was a moment when Martin Luther King had been resisting, like they wanted him to be the head of the civil rights movement. He didn't want to be that because he knew that there might be some consequences and it'd be easier to live a nice little life, you know, with kids and a church in Alabama and just live his life. But there came a moment where he had to surrender to something bigger than himself. And I think when we do surrender, that's when we open to more. There's the idea and the thought that, well, if I surrender, I won't get what I want. I won't get the relationship I want. I won't get the house I want, the car I want, the, the life I want. My, my, my invitation and the, the way I've lived my life and the theory and everything I'm really inviting people into is, what if you surrender and you got more? You got more than you could imagine, more than you could dream, more than you could have even fathomed for yourself in that openness. And so I think we have to move from the question, what do I want? I, me, ego, which can only see a small piece of the entire tapestry of life, a small piece of the artwork, because we're looking from the lens of our own limited perception, our own limited ego's perception, which doesn't see the whole pie. What do I want? And I think that the invitation is to ask, ask ourselves, what is life? What is life? What is the universe? What is my soul? What is life seeking to express through me? and to be still and allow ourselves to be open to that. And as we, we allow that deeper authenticity, that deeper truth, that deeper soul inspiration to come through us, then we can align our actions. It's not about being lazy, right? But then we can align our actions and our intention and our creativity and our strategy and our marketing and our, you know, and our everything and our efforts in alignment with the deeper impulse of our soul. And that's when I think we live in flow. And I, and I saw my mother live there and I saw my father live there and, you know, I saw the great ones live that, you know? And so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of part of the inspiration. Mm. Beautifully said. I feel like it's, it's that notion, as you so eloquently put it, of, of what is the life that wants to live through me as opposed yes. to, as opposed to the egoic notion of how can I steer this in the, oh, no, it's supposed to be this direction or oh, that, that direction. And, <laughs> and I know that, you know, I, 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 you both in your personal story, I mean, I, you share a bit and won't go too deep into it because, you know, folks can check it out in, in the book, but, you know, there were moments even in, with, with yourself in your own life where you're like, yes. you know, I want to be the next Oprah and I'm you know, going to Hollywood and I'm going to ban and I resonated with that because for me, for example, you know, and you know a bit about this, but when I launched Global Citizen Festival, it, it wound up actually being successful beyond our, our wildest dreams. But, but just as you had a bit of a reckoning um, with, with the, the, the cancer diagnosis with your mother, for me, when my father was diagnosed with dementia, it was, it was a total reckoning. And I realized that in some ways, uh, and my ego, uh, and, and, and frankly, everything that I put into Global Citizen wanted to stay there. Mm. Yet what I realized, and, and someone said to, this to me, and it, it, was, it, was, it was hard to hear, but beautifully eloquent, which is sometimes you want your life to look like an oak tree. You know, you, you're, you're fixated on the oak tree. But the seed that you were, that, you, that, that has been planted, you know, that is germinating is, is, is a tulip. Now, a tulip is actually incredibly beautiful. 
but not if you're forever trying to be an oak tree. <laughs> um, and, and for me, at the time, it was hard because I had this notion of, okay, global citizen and this oak tree, which I was, which I was looking to uh, embody, and, and, and yet had to, in some ways, let that go to surrender, yes. if you will, yes. for the deeper aspect of my next chapter, my next iteration mm-hmm. to move through me, which was gestated in large measure through this incredibly painful process of, of watching my father slowly surrender to life through dementia, yeah. Yeah. A, a forced surrender prolonged over seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it, what it, you know, there was a, there's a beautiful, um, and I think you'll resonate with this, a beautiful shaman, mind shaman that I had worked with, a true shaman, not a, not a, not a declared shaman. And he said to me something that resonated because I read something very similar in your book from the lesson of your mother. And he said, he said to me that, that sometimes pain is the horse that beauty rides and, and the, the shit that comes in life sometimes is the spiritual compost for new growth, you know? And so for me, the, the challenges, the deep challenges of that experience were actually the compost for that tulip to grow and to evolve. And, and it's evolving to this day, but, but what I, what I, what I resonated with when I was reading your mother's story is, you know, you said she did not fight life, but trusted it fully. And that yes. basically, even in hard times, you know, we're given we're given the gift of something beautiful if we surrender into it. And yes. that notion of, for me, of the muse, you know, I mean, it, 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 it evoked for me two, two folks. I well, I deeply admire. You probably could be friends of yours, but Stephen Pressfield, who I've had on the show, you know, the author of War of Art, you know, talks about that notion of the muse. And you had talked earlier about your book, and it's not this notion of I got to fight for this New York Times bestselling idea. It's more surrendering into, which was this book, what's the deeper truth that wants to live through me? Like, in essence, you are the vessel, and based on what is, is being, uh, your soul is looking to express, you are simply a vessel for that message to come through. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about it in Big Magic, that notion of the muse trying to, 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 to express itself through the life which is you. And I so resonate because especially at this moment, and I think as you so eloquently put it, 2020 is a forced surrender for us all. In many ways, it was, to use the metaphor of the season, it was this collective fall, right, where all of us were forced to shed these leaves. And now the question for me, to bring it back to the metaphor of the garden, it's like, what's the compost for this collective spring that is available for us? But do do we try to go back to a forced reality, a forced construct of our own egoic construction, or do we actually use this spring and this fertile soil that has been forced through this shared reckoning that we've all now experienced as an opportunity for that unique planting of our unique seed in this garden, this collective garden, and the way in which it can grow and flourish and express itself, if I think we can align to this notion, which you've so eloquently put, of surrender and the, and the, and the power of surrender which I, which is the power of surrender is what I want to ask you next, right? Because you actually talk about this in, yeah. in the exemplification of the models you so, so eloquently talk about, like of Nelson Mandela, which is my great hero on the planet, aside from my father and, and a variety of others. But, but in many ways, this notion of, of actually we, we construct societally this notion that, oh, no, surrender is weakness. <clears throat> surrender yeah. is weakness. But actually, it's quite the opposite. Can you talk a little bit about the power of surrender? Yeah, I mean, so we have this idea that surrender is passive, surrender is weak, but I'm actually saying surrender takes a tremendous amount of trust. Surrendering is 
is proof in your trust in the universe. And that takes a tremendous courage. We have this idea, surrender is passive, surrender is weak. If you surrender, you're going to be taken advantage of. But I look at someone like Mandela. There came a point where he had to surrender himself to his path, even though he knew that that path might take him into territory and experiences that you know, he of himself would rather not go. That takes tremendous courage. It takes more courage to surrender to, let's say, Martin Luther King, surrendering to the way of peace and nonviolence, that even when you're in a moment of being attacked and to surrender to the alignment of that ideal than to just retaliate and fight back, that takes profound surrender. There's a whole nother level. In surrender, I think that the deeper you go to, uh, you realize that this is going to sound strange, but the deep, at least the deeper I go, the more I realize I don't have a choice. Mm. The deeper I go, the more I realize I don't have a choice, the freer I become. And that's the crazy paradox because the more, you know, in ego and on surface I am, the more I think I have a choice, <laughs> the, le- the less free I am. Because when you really surrender, you bring yourself into alignment with your soul more and more and more. And then the things that you thought you could do, the relationships you thought you could be in, all these just, just kind of like are no longer an option because of that deeper alignment, you know? And, and so surrender is powerful. Like if you look at even one of my, one of my uh, heroes is Muhammad Ali. You know, he had a successful life as an athlete, but, but wasn't in alignment with the Vietnam you know, conflict and refused to fight in the war, a war that he didn't believe in. So he decided to stand in his convictions. It, that, that's not passive. That's not weak. That's not passive. That's not, you know, just rolling over. He stood in his convictions to the point where he was willing to, to sacrifice whatever it was. And, and look at the impact of his actions decades later. And we're talking decades later. He didn't just win a heavyweight title. He has a legacy, became an icon of integrity. Decades later, his action of living in alignment, that action cultivated a soul force that is still creating ripples of of inspiration. Look at Mandela, still creating ripples of inspiration over time. And so I think that it has a power. And when we really align with the truth, when we really align with our soul, when we really align with the integrity of this is what I'm guided to do. Oh, shit, it's scary. It's terrifying. My mind would rather, like, take the comfortable path. But this is what I'm guided to do. That's I, when, when I believe we go beyond our own personal power and we tap into the power, the real power, the power of life, the power of the universe, the power of the infinite intelligence. We tap into a power beyond ourself, small self, that is our self, big self, and Life, you know, life starts to move through us. The power of life starts to express to us. One thing I do want to share is many times when we're, we're guided to do something, you know, surrender also, just to be clear, in practical terms, surrender might mean, hey, if you're in a relationship that you hate, that you know is not right, but it's comfortable or, you know, you feel guilty for leaving, you know it's not right, you know it's not lying. Surrendering might mean to really acknowledge the truth and to have that conversation 
and to and to end that relationship. Surrender might mean if you're in a job that you know is not the fullest expression of your destiny and and you it's just eating you up inside. Surrender might mean really acknowledging that and start starting to make plans to move in a totally different direction and to surrender to something more and, and go in that direction. So surrender can happen on many different levels. Many times we reach a point in our life, and maybe some folks listening in maybe at this point, where the life we have created for ourselves is actually too small for what our soul is seeking to become. It doesn't mean it's not great. Doesn't mean it's not, we're not successful. Doesn't mean we're not making money. Doesn't mean everything isn't wonderful. But we've outgrown. There comes a moment where I think if we're on an evolutionary path, we will naturally come to a point where we have outgrown the life that we have created and our soul is seeking to go to the next level and the next level of our life will require that we release and let go of what is not aligned, of the people that aren't aligned, of the experiences that aren't aligned, the aspects of ourselves that aren't aligned, the old identities within ourselves that we perceive ourselves to be that aren't aligned so that we can expand to the next level. Yet what we tend to do in those moments out of fear, out of familiarity is hold on. The first I'm going to try to break down surrender into a few stages. So that first stage, we'll call it denial, which is even a stage before we even get to the stages of surrender. But let's say uh, we're living a life and we don't even know that something needs to change. We just think this is who we are. We think this is what life is. So we're kind of stuck in a moment of denial. We're, we're not conscious. We're just living our life. And even if it's not working, we're, we're disconnected. That's, let's just say that's stage one. Then we move into a next phase where we maybe start becoming aware like, hmm, something about this relationship isn't quite working. Uh, something about my current career path, my purpose is, I know there's more, I know there's more that I was born to give, born to express, there's, there's creativity, there's aliveness, there's something more, I don't feel alive, something's missing, something, something. And so we start becoming a little bit more conscious, a little bit more aware, you know, maybe listen to, you know, Michael's Peak podcast and was like, hmm. Something's stirring in my soul. Uh, the challenge is the second phase, as we start becoming aware, and we know that something does need to change, we may not be sure what, is often hit with resistance. The ego starts to resist change. The ego starts to resist letting go because we start becoming afraid of the consequences of, of, of what making some of the changes we're beginning to have an inkling we need to make. And so we hold on in resistance to preserve the old structures in some way. And so then we move into the next phase after we've been resisting. And it becomes usually when we start resisting, uh, for so long, that's when we move into a moment of suffering. And so perhaps the resistance has become too painful. Then we start negotiating in our minds. The negotiation process is beyond resistance, but we start to negotiate like, well, maybe I can keep this and keep that and do a bit of this. Maybe I, you know, maybe my partner, they have so much potential and maybe it can work. So we start negotiating again as another way to, to hold on to the current structure or our current reality, even though we know something needs to shift, even though we know it needs to be released. One of the things we do in these couple of stages to keep ourselves stuck is we lie to ourselves. 
you know, we 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 bullshit ourselves, we lie to ourselves, we rationalize, we we play this game of I don't know, I'm confused, I don't know what my purpose is, I don't know if this relationship is right. So so that kind of cloud of confusion allows us to stay stuck. And so if anyone listening in, if you are in that moment of kind of confused, I would say likely there is a part of you, if you're really honest that knows, that knows what you need to do, knows where you need to go. There's a deeper part that has an inkling if that relationship is right or not. Begin to acknowledge the truth. And so ask yourself, what lies am I telling myself? What am I pretending to not know? And what is it really costing me? Then we start moving into a phase of, we'll call it, um, (laughs) we realize that no matter how much we negotiate, nothing is going to change. If things aren't going to change, our partner's not going to change, uh, we're not going to shift, our situation is not going to shift, so we start moving into that zone of acceptance. It is what it is, they are what they are, this is what it is, and we move into a state of acceptance. The, the thing is, acceptance doesn't necessarily mean surrender. And a lot of people think that acceptance, oh, I've reached acceptance, this is freedom. We can be in a state of acceptance but still be in a moment of resistance, you know? I mean, you live in Mexico, brother, you know, Tulum. Hey, Mexico, living in Mexico is beautiful and amazing, yet, you know, there's Wi-Fi issues and there's, you know, it has its own set of challenges. And so uh, uh, we can be in, in acceptance, but if there's still in this zone, there can still be layers of resistance in our consciousness where we are still fighting the experience fighting our current situation with the sense of the experience that I'm having is not the experience I should be having. I should be having some other experience than the experience I'm having. It shouldn't be so hot. The Wi-Fi shouldn't be like this in Tulum. You know, why is this this way? Why is that this way? Why do things take a long time? Blah, 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 blah. But the reality is you're in freaking paradise. You're in Mexico. It's, you know, this is, this is part of the charm. So acceptance doesn't necessarily mean surrender, but it's a, it's a step towards. To move from acceptance to surrender, most people don't go through the next stage. Surrender, just to be clear, uh, in this pathway is the open-hearted acceptance and participation with the experience and the process of what is unfolding. The open-hearted participation with the moment, with the experience, with the situation where we roll ourselves sleeves up and we understand that every single experience is happening for my highest good and this or something better, but we understand that we are here as souls to evolve. And so the open-hearted participation is where we roll our sleeves up and no matter what's happening, we seek to learn and grow and evolve and learn the soul evolutionary lesson for why we have attracted that situation. And we dive into that, even if it's difficult, with an open heart, knowing that we can learn and grow and evolve from the situation. Now, to move from acceptance to surrender the phase that most people miss or don't go through for a variety of reasons is grieving. A lot of us, we avoid, and and it's understandable, you know, it's, it's painful when a loved one dies. And sometimes we don't allow the grieving in our life because if I don't grieve, then I can still stay connected to that person. If I don't grieve, then I don't have to acknowledge that the relationship is over. If I don't grieve, then I don't have to like let go and, and face the change that might happen. Or we're afraid that if we really allow ourselves to grieve, then 
the grief will never end and we'll never come out of it or we'll stay stuck. But what I found is when we don't allow ourselves to grieve, all feelings remain present until fully felt. And when we, when we truly allow ourselves to grieve and grief might kind of happen in waves and layers, not all in one moment, not all in a weekend, not all in a ceremony. It may happen in stages and layers over time. When we allow ourselves to grieve, we allow ourselves to peel the layers away and each layer facilitates another level of freedom, another level of freedom, another, another, another level of freedom. And so I think the grieving, we have to realize that surrender is a death. Surrender in some way is a death of an old life. You know, I was speaking to a dear friend who fell in love. She fell in love. She, she's getting married. And yet there's grief. There's grief of, and I'm like, what's the grief about? There's grief of the life that she could have had with all of the other loves of her life. There's the grief of giving up her own sort of perceived independent single identity. And so the allowing of the grief Surrender is a death, death of an old life, death of who we thought we were, death of a perception, death of the life we thought we were going to live. And when we can truly allow the grieving, then we can release, then we can let go, then we can get lighter, then we can move into that phase of authentic, open-hearted surrender where we can meet life with that open heart and embrace and receive what's happening, even though we don't know what's happening then from surrender, we move into that next phase, which I call the magic, you know, the magic or in the flow. And when we're in that flow, uh, when we're in that flow, then we're riding the wave. When we're riding that wave of life, we're not trying to make the wave, create the wave, force the wave. Then things start happening that we, we know. our job really, last thing I'll say is our job is not to make life happen. Is not to even force life or to manifest life. The, the ocean is already happening. You know, the waves are happening. Our job is to feel for the energy. Our job is to feel for the waves. And our job is really to allow the ability to allow life to lead us, allow life to guide us, allow life to show us and, and follow the deepest impulse of life. That's when we're in the flow. That's when we're in the dance. And one thing we have to truly give up to live surrender that I see is very hard because, you know, control is a master addiction for us as human beings. One thing we have to give up is the, let's say, the, 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 the need to know, the need to know everything, the need to understand everything, the degree to which we're able to embrace and dance in the unknown is the degree to which we can experience freedom. And so the mind is always trying to kind of control life. What does this mean? What does this relationship mean? Where's it going? Why is it? What is it not? Why, why, why? And I, and I think in, in that mental control paradigm as a way of safety and survival, we end up limiting life because we constantly need to understand what things are in order to follow the guidance. Oh, I'm actually saying, what if you didn't need to understand what anything really meant. What if you didn't even need to know where you were going to get to go to get to exactly where you need to be? The invitation is feel the impulse. That impulse is a deeper intelligence. That impulse is arising from beyond your logic, beyond your conditioning, beyond your mind, beyond your past reference experience. That impulse is arising. That deeper soul guidance is arising from the total intelligence of life and existence. The total intelligence of life and existence that is the force of creation that has been around billions of years functioning the sun, 
functioning the stars, functioning the moon, is breathing you, breathing me, breathing 7 billion people and all the multidimensional species of this universe. That intelligence is what is moving through us. And if we can just begin to trust that a bit more, you know, it's living you, it's living me, you know, it's, it's happening in life. How can we not trust that if we look around and if we can listen to that and follow that and allow ourselves to be guided to that and, and, and move in that direction? That's when I think the magic happens. That's when grace flows. That's when, that's when miracles happen in ways that are profound, in, in, in ways that bl will, will blow us away. And that's when we can say sometimes not getting what you thought you wanted is actually grace, is actually a huge blessing. Mm. So beautifully, I felt the force in, in your words uh, as you just sort of eloquently talked about that, that notion of, of life itself seeking yes. to move to move through us. Yes. And I feel like, I mean, so much came up for me, but as I'm sort of taking the, the perspective of the listener and, and the inquiry of, of those, as you evoked earlier of, you know, if, if you have that sort of nagging sense within yourself of, of something being off or life yes. perhaps not being in flow as, as you uh, being a vessel through which life lives, and are, are struggling with that process of surrender. And I think about what are the, some of the tangible steps and, and you sort of break down that path. One of the things that stood out to me most uh, was the notion of grieving and the notion of death. Mm. And I feel like, you know, you, you talked about Mexico and here, you know, you see skulls and there's the day of the dead. And, yeah. and it, for many of us in Western culture, you know, we so avoid, we live our lives almost in avoidance of the inevitable nature of life, which ultimately is death and our own mortality and, and, and not in alignment with sort of the stoic notion of a memento mori and, and using death as an impetus for fully living, right? Like, uh, or, or in the context of this conversation, if you will, of life fully living itself through us in yes. our full expression as the plants before me are, right? If the plants mm -hmm. are not asking, hey, should I be a rosebush? This mm -hmm. bougainvillea is growing to the sun. The, 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 the ocean is not asking if it should be something else. It simply is being, right? The, everything is, is operating as an expression mm -hmm. of its own unique nature uh, mm -hmm. in, this, in this beautiful interdependent, interconnected uh, reality, which is life. And, and you said something really beautiful in the book that really struck me that I want to share with the listeners. Um, that was what matters is not simply what we do, mm. but who we become in the process of life itself. And I love that distinction. Mm. I'm going to read it again. What matters is not simply what we do, but who we become in the process of life itself. Mm. The reason I love that distinction is so much of our orientation in living our life, the programming we're given is our identity is in the doing. And yet it's so actually in some ways antithetical to the true essence of who we're being. Yes. And, yes. and being is at the center from which I think this surrender process allows and guides us in the doing. Mm -hmm. And if we put doing first, it's oftentimes when we get lost, it's like to use the metaphor of sailing. It's like when, when you're not working with the wind 
and you're just trying to hoist the sail and 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 control and you're agitated and you know you get tossed about and and there's relentless you know there's relentless turbulence and then ultimately you get tossed about by the waves of life and and oftentimes capsize or sink whereas yes. whereas if actually in the beingness you simply are in the listening and you allow the prevailing winds to guide your sails mm. then you can navigate commensurate your doing becomes commensurate with the beingness which is the prevailing winds and the waters that are before you and in in that case then you can sail and navigate beautifully through those waters but i think many of us get stuck in this societal construct and notion that is oh i've got to do to, yeah. <laughs> to be acknowledged to be accepted exactly. to be legitimate and and it's actually in surrendering that construct of who we think we need to what we think we need to do mm-hmm. to be something that will be loved and appreciated and adored and actually instead just surrender into that notion of who we're being that 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 ultimately I feel like that liberation comes and and I want to touch on one other thing which is that notion of freedom. Can, can, can I can I just add to what you yeah, just yeah yeah go for it go for it it's so important <laughs> I think doing is the ego's way you know ego is not a thing you know to me ego is just a process a mechanism of mm. how we identify ourselves to be based on our beliefs our values our past experiences, our emotions, and we hold on to that and we call that me. But ego is more of a process. And so doing is really the ego's way of reinforcing itself. And so, you know, one of the reasons we are so afraid of not doing, and one of the reasons we're so addicted to doing, 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 is is our sense of perceived self feels that when I do, 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 then, then, oh, it's like, I'm here, I'm here, I'm, I'm Michael, I'm Michael, I'm here, I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And yet, and yet it's really uh, on some level an illusion, you know. If you look at Jesus, for instance, right, and again, not a religious conversation, Jesus is a, an example of possibility, a uh, guy who performed many miracles, so to speak, or supposed miracles, and after every miracle, I never heard him say in any scriptures or what have you, yeah, yeah, yeah Michael, people, coot, I'm Jesus. Look, 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 at, look at what I did. I'm amazing. I fed the people. I fed the, the 5,000. I did this miracle. To me, the code, the code that he laid down, he said, it's not I that does the work. It is not I, keyword I, this independent, self-separate perception, identity, I that does the work. It is the Father that does the work. The Father, consciousness, life, innate intelligence, nature, universe, beingness that does the work through me. And he realized that he was not the doer. And when we realize that we are really not the doer independently of ourselves, that's why miracles were able to happen through Jesus because he wasn't the one doing them. But our ego wants to kind of like claim credit, hold on, like, ah, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing. And, and, and that gives us a sense of like existing, you know, it gives a sense of identity, it gives us a sense of perceived realness, you know. And so part of the surrender is to realize that we are not just this body, we're not just this form, we're not just this, this identity, this collection of beliefs and thoughts and emotions that we really attached to from 
a level of conditioning and past programming because all of that is constantly changing. We are this beingness. You know, what we really are is this beingness. And I think when we really, 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 really look deeper and go deeper and question, then also the fear of death begins to drop away. You know, the fear of death begins to drop away because we realize we start to question and investigate like, who, who am I really? And what is it that dies? And I think when we, when we can really surrender ourselves, um, that's when miracles happen. You know, real miracles happen to us. Magic happens. You know, our destiny, our purpose really can, uh, like if you look at man, if you look at Gandhi, I mean, he was one guy not the richest man in the world. And he was able to move a nation, but that wasn't just him. You know, that, he was tapped into, he was surrendered to this being. He was surrendered to this being. And that, when we really surrender, the ego is afraid to surrender because it's afraid of shit. I'm going to die. I won't really exist. And it doesn't really exist anyway. But someone like Gandhi just surrendered to being lived by beingness, by life itself. I think what was able to manifest through him was not of his own personal identity, intention. And that is the, I think, the next level for us as a humanity in terms of where we're being pushed to live, you know, where we're being invited to go as a way of operating and living our lives. Yes. Yes. If Gandhi had held on to the notion that I need to be a lawyer, the entire world would be a different place today, um, which, which is likely what an ego would would yearn to hold on to. Yeah, there's this idea that, that, you know, sometimes you have this idea, the ego is like, oh, this is my dream, you know? This is my dream, my idea, my project, my book, my talk, my podcast. It's, this is, this is sometimes we have this dream, it's like, oh shit, how, how do I, how do I, I mean, sometimes we, we, sometimes we have these dreams that are so big that, that, that the ego, we get afraid, I don't know if you've had this, but we get afraid of like, how is this going to happen? How am I going to manifest? How am I going to do this? Oh my God. Because we think it belongs to us. And when we realize that the dream you have, the book you have, the idea you have, the vision you have, there's something very freeing when you really get clear and you surrender and you realize that, that dream doesn't belong to you. It belongs to life. And if it belongs to life, encoded in it is also the seeds for its fulfillment. And if it belongs to life, then life knows exactly what to do and how to do it to manifest through you. Then our job is to just say yes, be open, show up, give 100%, do our part, and allow ourselves to be the vessel. Then life, this intelligence of life, will do it through us. We'll, you know, my father would often say to me as a kid, when I was a kid, when I would stress out in my teens, I mean, I'll never forget when he said this, and I'd be stressing out, how am I going to do this? And how am I going to do that? And he would look at me and he'd say, cool, cool, son, 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 just one second. And I'd say, what dad? And he would say, did you bring yourself here onto the planet? You know, my dad was this sort of old school African guy with a booming voice. Did you bring yourself here into this planet? And I was like, no. 
Did you manifest yourself into this human plane existence? No, because what happened? I just showed up here. And he said, exactly. If you didn't bring yourself here, if you didn't manifest yourself and something did, an intelligence did, the same intelligence that if you cut your finger, it knows how to heal your finger without you doing anything, what makes you think that this intelligence doesn't know how to fulfill itself through you? If you just get yourself out of the way and trust it, and that really stuck with me, you know, as a, as a fun thought. Yeah, I, I, that notion of trust and that notion of, I, I think that's one of the key distinctions I wanted to, to actually mm-hmm. bring back up that you, that you, that you raised earlier. Yes. And, and sort of is, is this notion, this notion of, you know, how we step out of that as your father would eloquently put it, you know, sort of the, the almost like the ego, the egoic uh, hiccups, if you will, that, that sort of derail us in, in listening to our soul's call, you know? And, and one of the things that I find oftentimes is, is sort of a prevailing uh, egoic hiccup that, that really disallows that flow of the soul calling, which I think is, is, is extraordinarily prevalent today uh, in the lives of many people are, are sort of the addictions or the ways in which we, we, we numb ourselves mm. from, from that, that from, the, from the wounds of the ego, which, which ultimately keep us from the true listening to the soul. And, you know, I, I posted something the other day that actually got more resonance than, I've, than anything else I've, I've ever posted. And I want to read it to you because I think you'll appreciate it. And it taps into what you were talking earlier about that notion of grief, which I think is a core distinction. And it was basically sit with it instead of drinking it away, smoking it away, sleeping it away, eating it away, fucking it away or running from it. Sit with it. Healing happens by feeling. Yes. And I think I think that notion of for those listening, that notion of feeling and the healing that happens in the feeling. And you and you you draw you've drawn on this in several instances, you know, you talk about bringing a man, for example, to India, uh, who had lost his father, but never fully allowed himself to feel it. And, mm-hmm. and the idea to me of in, sometimes in order to allow that soul force yes. to, to wake up to itself in, in a way to find that, you know, when I, I lived with the tra- traditional healer for two years on the Southern coast of Sri Lanka, and he talked about healing ultimately as balance, mm-hmm. you know, and in a way I feel like at times we have to, uh, that the grief is like a dam, you know, and it disallows that flow of the, of the waters and it disallows the balance that is life seeking to live itself in equilibrium. And I feel like the one piece is there's so many instances and opportunities now in societal <laughs> egoic life to numb ourselves from the yeah. listening, which is our soul's call. And I feel like that's one piece that is, it's so present for me because I feel like it is fucking hard. I get it. Like grieving yeah. is hard, right? Death is hard. And at the same time, it is the compost, right? It is the ability then only when we move through the grief that it, that, that it loses in some ways its power, its gravity over it. It, be, it's, it no longer the dam, you know, the dam is broken. And then the waters within us that are seeking to move through us, as you so eloquently put it as this vessel, can finally uh, yes. can can finally water that compost, water that soil, such that it enables that growth, that flourishing, that is that soul force to live through us. Yeah. And and I feel like that's one piece that I see I've seen in my own life. You know, speaking authentically, 
um, and, and I see in the lives of so many others, where instead of actually the hard work of, of the, the greater I, which I think is what you're talking about when you talk about uh, this notion of the Muhammad Ali or the Mahatma Gandhi or their mother Teresa, where they actually did sort of allow for the grief of the smaller I self that maybe had a different vision of life and, and instead allowed for that, gr- that greater not greater egoic greater, although ironically, <laughs> all of them all of them are remembered uh, way more than than most who 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 is, who who succumb to that you know relentless pursuit for the smaller I egoic you know victory, and and then became in many ways sort of the legacy because of their stand for the other, which is this soul force that that is seeking to move through us all, and mm. so I just I feel like that's such a, be- a beautiful and eloquent distinction. That was mm-hmm. so pivotal in my understanding in terms of, you know, I think the societal addictions, the personal addictions that keep us from that listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just wanted to, like, really emphasize that. And I, I, how because you talk about this notion of miracles and miracle mindset. Are there any other distinctions that you would draw that you feel like, you know, and obviously I want to encourage people. And we're going to we're going to draw this to a close soon. And I want, want people to obviously check out your, your incredible work. But are there any other aspects of the mindset as people think about this? Right. Because I'm, I'm sure there's a listener out there that's thinking to themselves. This is amazing. Like, I totally get it. However, as I'm sitting here today, like what next? Like, what do I do? How do I actually let this listening or this surrender, this letting go move through me and still operate in day to day life in society? Are there, are there any yeah. insights? Yeah, I, I, I would say let's just to break it down to a few simple, I mean, not steps because it's not like a formula, but, but number one, I think it's, it's, it's important that you create the daily space in your life on a daily basis to acknowledge the grieving, to acknowledge those places in your life where you might be carrying old frequency, old energy, old incompletions inside of your own heart because all all of the old incomplete resentment, hurt, guilt, shame, pain that you're carrying from old relationships, old failures, old breakdowns, old betrayals, old what have you is simply a frequency and energy that is that is resonant in your nervous system, stuck in your physiology, covering up, clouding up, you know, parts of your own heart, your ability to love, your ability to surrender, your ability to express. And so I think one of the things that we, we can do is create daily space to, to journal, to feel, to be in nature, to allow ourselves to release the energy of the old, of the pain, of the hurt. Sometimes, you know, one of the reasons we don't grieve, and, I, and I'm so glad you're kind of reinforcing that point, is this idea of you know, the law of attraction, like, oh, if, I, I, I got to keep my vibe high, Michael. Got to keep my vibe high all the time. <laughs> high vibe, high vibe, high vibe, high vibe. The challenge is if we suppress that grief with an effort to keep our vibe high because we don't want to attract what we think is low vibe, when we suppress that energy, that frequency or that heaviness, it simply stays stuck inside of us. And unconsciously, we will simply recreate in our life more of the experiences to reinforce that grief, and we will just block our hearts. When we don't allow that, the energy, the humanity, so part of it is surrendering to our humanity as well, not getting lost in the humanity, but surrendering to the humanity, not getting lost in the feeling or wallowing in the feeling, but allowing those feelings to move through us so that we can stay clear and free 
then open because remember all feelings remain present till felt all feelings have a cycle and when we feel them then we clear that that energetic pattern from our physiology our nervous system our our body our psyche then we vibe higher naturally then we then we are naturally more open and to you could say manifesting miracles is not about making miracles happen it's about clearing away all of the energies clearing away whatever is not in alignment with that highest vibration in life we tend to consistently get not what we think about not what we visualize about not what we pray about not what we meditate we will get what we are we will get and attract to us in life a uh, a uh, shall we say, a vibrational match for the consciousness that we are resonating at truly, authentically, consistently right now. So if we're able to clear away the heaviness, the grief, the pain, then we will just naturally rise higher and higher and higher and manifest experiences, people, situation that are also resonating at the level that we're vibrating at not as some kind of like manipulation or overlay, but as a natural energetic vibrational compatible match for, for the state of our consciousness. And so I think creating the daily space for that, for, that, for that grieving to release, to let go, and honoring that, it's okay, honoring that time. I would say spend time in nature. The reason I say spend time in nature on a practical level is when we spend time in nature, then we can observe nature. Someone asked me, Kud, how do I trust? How do I trust? And I think I mentioned briefly, but if you really observe life and you observe nature, how can you not trust? I don't know about you, Michael, but has there ever been a day where you woke up and at 11 a.m. it was pitch black because the sun just forgot to shine that day? <laughs> nope. It just forgot to like, what happened to the sun? Ah, it just fell asleep. It just forgot to come out. Never in all of my life, in the decades, not one day did the sun not come out. Not one day did the moon and the stars. It's just, look at life. Like literally every breath that is happening. You and I, we're not, we're having this conversation. We're, we're you know, in the flow. We've been breathing for this, all, this hour or however long we've been in this flow together. Not once did you and I have to sit here and force breath and go, breathe, breathe, breathe. breathe. It's just happening. You and I, we all maybe ate some lunch or breakfast this morning, ate a salmon, ate a kale, ate a salad, ate an orange. How is it that an orange, how is it that our hand doesn't become an orange? There's an intelligence. And so we have through technology, through the, the, the sort of technologized culture that we're living in disconnected from our own nature. We've disconnected from nature. We are a part, like a mango, like a tree, like the sun. We are a part of nature. So I think if we can spend time in nature, reconnect with the rhythm, reconnect with our own nature, reconnect with that circular flow that we are a part of nature as well, then we see the rhythm of nature and how, how nature works. And I think Nature, life, if we really just pay attention, is constantly showing us and proving to us trust. Every moment to me of our life and every breath I take is proof of the trust of life. And the last thing I would say is I would invite everyone to really practically just look at your life and really ask yourself the questions. You know, I'm not saying do some fancy meditation, open the pineal gland. I mean, you know, float into 17 dimensions of, you know, consciousness. 
No, let's get grounded here on earth and ask yourself, what lies am I telling myself? What bullshit am I telling myself? Because I think when we lie to ourselves, we keep ourselves stuck. And many times we go pray to the universe, pray to God or whatever we believe. And imagine like we pray to God, say, God, help me. And I think God is just looking at, looking at us saying, I, I, I can't help you till you stop lying. Yeah, go deal with that lie that you're, you, that you're not telling yourself the truth about. And I think to me, truth is yoga. Truth is meditation. Truth is spirituality. Truth is spiritual practice. And so really look at what lies am I telling myself? Clear those out. Clear those out. What am I pretending to not know? Start getting real. Start getting honest. Start, start clearing out of one's life physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, people-wise, the things that are not in alignment with your truth. And maybe it doesn't have to happen all at one time. It might be one conversation at a time. It might be a person at a time. It might be an article of clothing. It might be cleaning your closets. It's just that you start clearing away the old. And I think that's the place where anyone can begin, you know? Anyone can start. I love that. I love that, Kuth. That, that pruning, if you will. Yes. All that which is not aligned, all the, all the bullshit. And, and frankly, some of the things that are just simply no longer an expression, an authentic expression of that natural essence that is you, that, that life that is seeking to move through you. Exactly. And, 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 and in some ways, the feeling that you evoked earlier, the feeling being the healing, actually allowing that feeling to happen. You know, it's a, I thought about like, was you're talking like an impala, you know, being attacked by a lion and how the reason that trauma doesn't stay with them for their whole lives is because they fully shake it out. You know, uh, you know, if they escape, if they escape that attack, they shake off that, the trauma of the attack. And then, and then they move, they move, they move on because they've, they've moved through it. They've, they've felt it. And, and only in the feeling is there the release such, such beautiful insights, my man. I, I want to, um, I want to encourage people to, to really tap into your work. Where is the best place for people to, to find you? And, and also, you know, your, your book, uh, which oh. I, which I've read is, uh, is just, is chock full of insights as it relates to a lot of the wisdom shared in this conversation. So I'd love for you to share a bit more about where they can find that as well. That's awesome. Uh, well, firstly, they can get the book, uh, www.themagicofsurrender.com, themagicofsurrender.com. You can go there, get the book. Uh, you'll be directed to Amazon. And once you buy a book, you can come back there and tell your receipt. You're going to get a whole bunch of free gifts and videos and meditations and PDFs. And so get the book there and spread the word. Uh, my website, coopblackson.com. You can find out info there. Uh, IG, Instagram, follow me there. Maybe send me a DM. Let me know you heard this this interview with with my brother Michael, Facebook, I'm on that as well, uh, sometimes Clubhouse now, but all over social media, YouTube. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, also if people feel like uh, going to the next level uh, in person, I do an amazing seminar. It's called Boundless Bliss Bali. You can go to boundlessblissbali.com and just, just reach out. Any, any way I can support, any way I can serve, it's my joy. Beautiful, my man. And uh, last question for now. Yes. Last question. If there were one, if there were one uh, insights or tool, uh, could be a, could be a book, obviously, you know, uh, you know, you've written your own, but there were one insight or, or tool, I guess Tim Ferriss 
you know, breaks it down and often asking, you know, if you had one billboard uh, yeah. with one message that you could articulate, what would it be? I guess the way that I'm trying to, uh, to ask the question is, if there were a core insight tool or practice that you could leave the listeners with right now, and doesn't have to be your, mm-hmm. you know, the finite, you know, penultimate insight, but, but more just something that you think would be of, of profound service. What's that yeah. one thing that you would kind of close with? I, th- I think based on this conversation and kind of the flow of what I'm feeling and something you had mentioned too, uh, this is what I'm guided to say in this moment. I would like everyone listening to this conversation to hear this. You are going to die. Let me repeat. You are going to die feel that not as a morbid thing not as a scary thing just as a reality it's happening me you bob marley you know bill gates oprah winfrey uh muhammad ali uh you know mother Teresa. we will all die that's fact not even a question sometimes we resist this notion of death and we live like we're going to live forever. Maybe there's now rumors of technology coming around where we'll live forever. The fact is Jesus died. Ramana Maharishi died. You're going to die. I'm going to die. The physical form will die. And the more we can just embrace that, I'm saying make death your friend. Feel it. Face it. Because if you really feel it and face it, I really believe that it can get you in touch with the reality and the preciousness of this existence. We often waste so much time on petty bullshit, on grudges, on gossip, on this, on that. And so ask yourself, if death came today, if death came right now, would you be ready? Would you be ready? And if not, why not? What's ungiven? What's unexpressed? What's unloved? Do the people in your life know how much you love them? Is there anyone you need to forgive? What are you waiting for? Because the truth is, you don't have tomorrow. Tomorrow is not a right. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's not a right. And so what would you need to do to die without any regrets? Feel that. Feel death close. Whenever I feel death close as a meditation... Like today could be my last day and feel that, feel it in my heart as a meditation. It it can inspire a fierce urgency to love as fully as possible because at the end of one's life, that's all that freaking matters is how much you love. And when you die and you meet your maker, whatever you believe, you can't go to God and say, God, I, I, I wasted two years in that relationship that I knew wasn't quite right. Can I get a refund? I wasted five years in a job that I... I hated, can I get a refund? There's no refunds. So how would you need to live today? Truly, sounds simple, but many of us don't. How would you need to live today so that you really have no regrets? And if you knew the date and the time of your death, God said to you here, here's the date and the time of your death in an envelope. Would that change how you're living? And if so, seize the moment and make those changes. Surrender. Trust. Go in the direction of your deepest guidance. You don't have to know what's on the other side. You don't have to figure out what's going to happen when you let go and when you surrender. Just go and life will bring you exactly what you need when you need it. And that's when the magic unfolds. 
Coop Blackson. Beautifully said, my man. Thanks, Such man. an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. So grateful uh, for you and your stand and, and the work you're doing in the world. Um, yeah, this won't be our last conversation. Thanks so much. God bless. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Peak Mind and my conversation with Coots. If you did, please go ahead and share it with someone you think would appreciate it. If there's someone that is working around the concept of surrender, go ahead and send it their way. Um, If it's something that resonates, please go ahead and take a screenshot of where you're listening or a quote from the episode and and send it my way. uh, At Michael Trainer, at Coot Blackson. Uh, Let us know what you got from the episode. Uh, Let us know what you loved. If you have any feedback, I'm always happy to receive it. And you can go ahead and leave a rating review on iTunes. It helps us grow the show. Happy to say we've uh, hit over 500 five-star ratings. I'm super grateful for that. Thank you guys so much for listening. It's my commitment to continue to bring you great insights and great guests week in, week out. So thank you for listening. It means the world to me. And please go out there and live your inspired life.